In the seat back in front of you, look down in front of you, there's a card that looks just like this. It is a bookmark, and it's a little misleading because it actually says Mark on it. So it's a bookmark that says Mark. This is part of our all-church reading plan. So we're in the midst of sort of being committed together to be reading the text uh, in advance of our Sunday worship together. So for instance, if you were going to jump in on this with us, if you haven't already, uh, you would look at the second week, the January 14th week, and this week at some point we'd be encouraging you to be reading Mark 8, 34 through 9:50, which is the text we'll be studying next week. Um, this isn't a magic bullet. It's not like uh, you don't become a better Christian for doing this, but it is just something we can be doing together, a little way in which we can be rooted in God's word and really prepared for the studies that we'll be doing on Sundays. Um, if you're not somebody who's super familiar with Bible reading or maybe you've never done a Bible reading plan before, one of the things I love about this bookmark is that there are tools on the back that just kind of even show you what to do or some things to think about, some prompting questions. So please, every one of you, take one of these with you today, tuck it into your Mark journal or whatever, and think about joining us as we read through Mark together in the weeks ahead, but make sure you take one of those before you go. Okay, those are all my preamble issues. We come to Mark 8, and we're looking at the first part of Mark 8 this morning. I will tell you that Mark 8 is a pivotal place in the gospel of Mark, in that when we get towards the end of Mark 8, we will see a tipping point, and that tipping point basically is the, the downward slope to the cross. If you're familiar with Jesus at all, you know that one of the things we revere Jesus for and we worship him for is his death on our behalf. When we get to the end of Mark 8, Jesus telegraphs and says very plainly, Mark tells us, that he will be arrested and that he will be accused, that he will be lied about, that he will be uh, killed on the cross and that he will rise from the dead. Now, the disciples don't like hearing that, but really everything that follows that declaration at the end of Mark chapter 8 is, an, is sort of a forward progression or a, a kind of a spiral down to the cross. We're pivoting here in Mark 8 as Jesus sees the cross as his destination and begins to move toward it. And we'll talk in the days ahead a lot about what it means to be a disciple with regard to suffering and the difficulty and the pain that comes with being Jesus but also following Jesus. But here at the beginning of Mark chapter 8, we have a couple of really interesting things and maybe at first glance, even as Diane was reading it, maybe it's difficult for you to sort of see the way they all fit together. It feels like some disconnected stories. At the very beginning of Mark chapter 8, we have the feeding of the 4,000, which at first glance could just sort of feel like uh, we've been here and done this before, right? We've already studied the feeding of the 5,000 and it's not that different, right? The feeding of the 4,000 is different geographically in that some some commentators will look at the way, the ge geography in Mark is not super clear, but Jesus crisscrosses the Sea of Galilee several times. Some commentators will say that this feeding of the 4,000 that takes place at the beginning of Mark 8 has a more Gentile audience involved, that there are more Gentiles there. That would be particularly interesting following on the conversation that Jesus had with the Gentile woman in Mark 7, where remember the conversation he had about the scraps from the table, right, and feeding of the dogs. It's very interesting that potentially in Mark chapter 8, when he feeds the 4,000, that that crowd has a more Gentile bent to it, which would then be a complete illustration of what Jesus had just said to the woman and what she had said to him. But otherwise, the feeding of the 4,000 feels very similar to the feeding of the 5,000. And the things that follow, the disagreement with the Pharisees, uh, and then this interesting conversation about bread and the boat, we're going to look at all those this morning. 
I want to tell you that I think that the key to unlocking how all of these pieces fit together and what the author, Mark, intends for us to walk away with is found actually in the, in the very sort of peculiar story of the healing of the blind man that starts in verse 22. I think this miracle in chapter 8, verse 22, is the linchpin on which this whole chapter kind of turns. And, and I just want to look at it together because it's a weird miracle. Number one, it's only talked about in the Gospel of Mark, but there are a couple of unique things that happen in the midst of this miracle that don't happen anywhere else. So let's look at this together. Come with me first, if you will, to Mark 8, verse 22, and let's just read the story about this miracle. It will help us frame the rest of our study this morning. It says in verse 22 of Mark chapter 8, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Okay, one of the things that sets this miracle apart from any other miracle that Jesus does is this is the only place in the Bible where Jesus does a miracle and then essentially says, did it work, right? Well, how'd that, how'd that feel for you? Did it take? Like, what do you think? Was that a decent miracle or what? Like, when he says, can you see anything, this is unprecedented. There's no place else where Jesus asks, can you walk, or can you hear, or are your stomachs full while they were empty earlier? He never questions the success or failure of his miracle, except here in Mark chapter 8. It's very interesting that he looks at this man who is blind, and he does the miracle, and then he says, can you see? It's interesting that he asks the question. It's unique in all of the Gospels. What's also peculiar is that he asks the question and the answer from the man, look at it with me if you will, in Mark chapter 8, verse 23. He took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Verse 24, the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So not only does Jesus say, did it work or can you see anything, but the man says, Kind of, right? I mean, like his answer is like, I can see something, but I, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. Now, you might read that and go, how does this guy who was blind from birth even know what trees look like to make that distinction? The implication is that he has felt a tree and has a sense of what a tree might be and what he's seeing doesn't feel like what a human should be to him, right? So not only does Jesus put his hands on the man and then say, can you see? But the man's reply is, sort of. At first glance, it might appear to you like Jesus hasn't done this miracle very well, right? At the very least, it should put a little bit of one of those cartoon question marks above your head to say, why didn't Jesus nail this? In every other case, Jesus makes the blind man see, or he makes the lame man walk, or he makes the deaf man hear. Jesus doesn't really have to take a second go. But in this particular case, Jesus lays his hands on him again. He says, I can see something, but they just look like walking trees. Verse 25, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. I think this story, obviously, is not a story about Jesus needing a second try, right? So let me just say, in case you don't know, Jesus has the power to heal the man the first time. In fact, Jesus didn't need to spit on his eyes. He didn't need to touch the man. We believe that Jesus, the creator of the earth, the sustainer of all things, God in human form, didn't need to touch the man or say a word to him. He could have healed the man's blindness from a distance. He could have healed the man's blindness with a thought. And he absolutely could have thoroughly and successfully healed the man in the first go, right? There is no question about the limitations of Jesus' power or whether or not he makes mistakes. He does not. 
So we have to ask the question then, why does this thing happen in a sequence like this? If Jesus has the power to make him whole immediately, why does it appear to take two tries? If he has the power to make him see immediately, why does he ask him, can you see, knowing that the man will say, kind of, but not really? Well, this miracle is a symbol. It's a demonstration of the bigger picture of what Mark is trying to tell us about ourselves, what Mark is trying to tell us about the disciples, what he's trying to tell us about the Pharisees and the Herodians. There is a bigger picture to Mark chapter 8, and the bigger picture is of progressive spiritual enlightenment. Progressive spiritual enlightenment. And what I mean by that is in the very same way that the man who was at first touched by Jesus can see a little but not well, and then at a second go, he sees everything clearly as he's intended to see, there is a demonstration and a picture here for us, and we'll see this backed up by the rest of the text, of the fact that each and every one of us are on a journey of progressive spiritual understanding. We're on a journey of progressive spiritual enlightenment. There are some things that you see about God, some things you see about Jesus. There are some things you know about what the Bible says. There are some things you know about your own relationship with God. Some of those are things you've learned through studying the Bible. You've learned them through teaching. You've learned them through experience. But the reality is that there isn't a single solitary human being in the room who sees everything about Jesus clearly who sees everything about God clearly, all of us have a limited view, right? When it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to who Jesus is, when it comes to the heart of Jesus, there is a day coming, 1 John tells us, when we will be perfected because then we will see him as he is. But the implication of 1 John 3 is that every day prior to that day, we will see him kinda like he is. We will see him to the best of our ability in any given moment, right? There are limitations to our perception and our understanding, and we see that hit again and again and again in this text. So let's back it up just for a second, and then I'll show you the way these pieces fit together. In Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, we see the feeding of the 4,000, which is a demonstration of God's care for these hungry people. Jesus says, they haven't eaten in three days, and if I send them home, they won't have the energy to eat. So he feeds them with just a couple of loaves and fish like he had done with the 5,000. Immediately after that, it tells us back in Mark chapter 8, look at verse 11, uh, that Jesus crossed again to the other side. So they get in the boat and they cross. It says in verse 10, he got in the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees then came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. We don't know whether this is a a sense, I I really don't think this is exasperation, which would imply impatience on Jesus' part. I think this is just a sense of sorrow. I think we're hearing grief in this deep sigh from Jesus. But they say, we want you to give us a sign. We want you to prove to us that you are who you say you are. Prove to us that you're from God. And with a deep sigh, it says, Jesus said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Here we have these Pharisees who were saying, we see you and we see what you do, but we want you to do something to prove yourself to us. We want you to do something miraculous, show us a sign, right? Now I want to point out here that when Jesus says no sign will be given to this stubborn generation, he's not not himself being stubborn. He's not being difficult. You might look at it and go, why doesn't just... Jesus, do something magical, right? Why doesn't he just call down a lightning bolt? Or why doesn't he make water into wine? Or just do something to appease this crowd? Well, here's the thing to understand about miracles, right? Jesus doesn't do miracles for the sake of signage ever, right? 
Jesus doesn't ever do token miracles for the sake of showing that he's powerful or showing where he comes from or showing that he's God. He doesn't do token miracles. Every miracle we see Jesus do, and this is important, he does to meet the need of someone who is suffering, someone who is hungry, someone who can't walk, someone who can't see, right? Someone who is on the margins of society. Every miracle that Jesus does, he does as a demonstration of God's divine love for the broken creation, right? The brokenness of men and women, Jesus' miracles are always in service of a demonstration of God's love, but he never just does miracles to wow the crowd. He never does, you know, shock and awe miracles just to make people think he's cool. He always does miracles in the service of the needs of people as a demonstration of God's love. Now, interestingly, for those with the right eyes to see, those miraculous demonstrations of love can become a sign, right? When you see the love of God put on display in the healing of a blind man or of a deaf person or of a woman with an issue of bleeding, when you see the miracle of God demonstrated in his love for the needs of lost and hurting people put on display, it can equate to a sign for you, but God didn't do that thing. Jesus didn't do that thing just to be a sign. So when the Pharisees come and they say, give us a sign, give us a sign, you might look at it and say, why don't they just look at the fact that he fed 4,000? Isn't that enough of a sign? It wasn't a sign to them because it didn't fit in the paradigm of what they believed the king of, uh, of the Jews would do what they believed the Messiah would be about. The Messiah wasn't about feeding a bunch of scrappy people on a hillside. He definitely wasn't about feeding Gentiles, right? So when the Pharisees see this demonstration of love, it does not look like a sign of the Messiah to them. It feels like an outlier. Why? Because they have their own agenda. They have their own plan. They have things that they think fit inside the box of what Messiah will do, and therefore his demonstration of love doesn't look like a sign to them because his demonstration of love is not what they're looking for. And so for them, it is no sign. And Jesus isn't just going to do a magic trick. He's not just going to do a parlor trick to appease them. His miraculous power works on behalf of the grace and the generosity of God. It can be a sign for those with eyes to see it. But what has blinded the Pharisees is their own ideas, their own agendas, their own observations, their own perceptions. And therefore, when they see the feeding of the 4,000, it doesn't look like anything to them. Now, Jesus is thinking about this, right, when he gets into the boat with his disciples. So as we read on in Mark chapter 8, it's really interesting. He's just had this conversation with the Pharisees. It says in verse 14, well, in 13, it says they got in the boat again and they went to the other side. So here they're crisscrossing, right? And they get in the boat and it tells us in 14 that the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. And in fact, all they had with them was one loaf. Uh, We're not talking about like a loaf of wonder bread. We're talking about the ancient Near East. We're talking about basically a pita-sized piece of bread. That's what they had, right? So think about a pita. That's what they brought on the boat for all of them. And understandably, they're a little nervous about that. It's not enough food, right? You can imagine what starts to stir in the hearts of the disciples because they don't have enough food. I'm sure it was probably somebody's responsibility to bring the food and to make sure they had enough food, to buy the food. Somebody had to go to Trader Joe's or whatever, and somebody dropped the ball. They get on the boat, and they've only got this one loaf of bread, and Jesus then says something to them that's bread uh, adjunct, right? It's it's bread-related. He's not thinking about their pita. He's thinking about the conversation he just had with the Pharisees and what he says to them. And it's a stern warning. He says in verse 15, he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So he's talking about 
bread in sort of an outline kind of way, but he's not talking about their loaf. He's thinking about the conversation he just had with the Pharisees. So something you need to understand is that in the Bible, uh, whenever we hear about leaven, leaven is almost always a symbol or a type of sin or of evil, right? When, uh, when the Jewish people fled from Egypt and they had to make unleavened loaves, they left what was behind and they made this, these loaves without leaven. The unleavened bread that they make at the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a celebration of removing that wickedness, right? When we... Uh, when we studied 1 Corinthians, you'll remember there's a, a section in the middle of 1 Corinthians that talks about an immoral person in the midst of the body of believers, and rather than the body of believers confronting that immorality, they were kind of boasting about it, right? They, they were sort of turning a blind eye to it or even bragging about it. And at that point, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says this, and he talks about leaven here. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Paul says to the church at Corinth, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really leavened, as you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, right? Paul is saying to them, if you have this immoral person in your midst, and he's saying, I'm a Christian, but I can do these things. I'm a follower of Jesus, and it's no problem for me to be living sexually immoral, right? You have to remove that or it will become pervasive. It will, it will spread throughout your whole community. Leaven is always a picture of sin or of evil that spreads, right, inside the mix. So Jesus looks at his disciples in Mark chapter 8 when they get into the boat and he says, you guys, you listen to me. He says, you have to be careful about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And what he's talking about there is sin that can spread, right? A sin that can spread. Now, interestingly, in uh, Matthew, Matthew tells a similar story to this one. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus specifically there says that the leaven of the Pharisees has to do with their teaching. In Luke, when Jesus talks about the leaven of the Pharisees, he talks about it with regard to their hypocrisy. But whether we're talking about hypocrisy, which could, by the way, come in their teaching, or whether we're talking about teaching, which could be evidence of their hypocrisy, we're really talking about the same thing. And Mark 8 brings it into sharp focus, that when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Herodians, what he's saying is, there is a kind of blindness, a spiritual blindness, that can creep into your life where you're seeing, but you're not really seeing. You're seeing, but things are blurry, kind of like trees walking. He says, that happens if you let this leaven creep in. What's happening? Well, with the Pharisees, the Pharisees had an idea of what the Messiah would do. They had an idea of what Jesus would be about. And what they believed is that the kingdom of God would be for the spiritual elite. It would be for the, for the pious. It would be for the ones who did all of the religious requirements, the ones who were heads and tails above all of the lesser people, right? Because that's who they perceived themselves to be. And so their anticipation of who Jesus or the Messiah would be coming to serve would be to elevate the religiously pious, the spiritual elite. They expected the kingdom of God to be for them. And because that was their expectation, the framework of Jesus and his, his view of the kingdom, which was an inclusive kingdom, an inclusive kingdom that was for all sinners, right? Which, by the way, included the spiritually elite and included the pious and included the people who performed all of the rules, but also included all the people who didn't or who didn't give a, a care about that, right? Jesus' framing of the kingdom of God was an inclusive view and the Pharisees' view was an exclusive view. Similarly, the Herodians, or Herod himself, his view of what the Messiah would do would be to build a kingdom of God that would be for the wealthy 
And the powerful, the mighty, those who had come from the proper lineage, right? Kings and queens to rule the earth. The Messiah will come and he will set up a kingdom for the rich and the powerful, the influential. And the paradigm that Jesus actually enforces, once again, is not a kingdom that's just for the rich and powerful. Now, are they welcome at the table? Yeah, but not because they're rich and powerful, not because they come from the right families, not because they have the right DNA, not because they have influence. They're welcome at the table because like the Pharisee and like the the leper and like the prostitute, they're sinners. The kingdom of God is for sinners. The broad, inclusive view of the kingdom that Jesus brings doesn't fit with what the Pharisees want, and it doesn't fit with what the Herodians want, and because Jesus doesn't match their agenda, because he doesn't match their exclusivity, they can't see his miracles for what they are. They can't see his miracles as a sign of the demonstrative love of God because he's feeding Gentiles and he's helping sick people and he's talking to women and he's doing all these things that were radical at the time. Because they had their own framework, it was a lens through which they saw Jesus and because of their own lenses, they could not see Jesus clearly. In the boat, when Jesus says to them, you guys, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians or the leaven of Herod, What he's saying is, don't get so focused on your own plans or your own agenda that you can't see who I actually am and what I'm actually doing. Now, interestingly, the very thing that Jesus is warning them about is precisely what they do. And the irony is thick here, right? Jesus says this thing to them, and they don't hear what he says. They don't get into a deep conversation about the leaven of the Pharisees or the leaven of the Herodians. No, they're not talking about that at all. The disciples are embroiled in a conversation about that one stupid loaf of bread, right? Look back at the text with me, if you will. Jesus says to them in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse, uh, let's see, look at verse 15. He says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now, we don't know the nature or the tenor of that conversation. I don't know whether that was an argument. I don't know whether that was heated. What we do know is they're discussing something different than what Jesus put in front of them. What he said to them is, you've got to be on your guard that you don't become like the Pharisees, right? And instead they're going, you were supposed to bring the bread. No, I, th- I brought the bread yesterday. You were supposed to bring What am I supposed to eat? I'm hungry. Look at me. I'm bigger than you. I need more bread. I'm going to eat half that pita, right? They're having that conversation. And whether that comes from fear or whether they're blaming each other, whether they're worried that Jesus is going to be mad, whether they're worried they're not going to have enough to eat, whether they're looking over their you know, Trader Joe's schedule and trying to figure out whose responsibility, who dropped the ball. I don't know what it is they're discussing, But it says in the next verse that Jesus was aware of their discussion and that their discussion troubled him, right? He says to them, well, it says, go back to the text. Jesus, verse 17, aware of this, said to them, and he's going to ask them a series of questions, and these questions kind of stack up. Some of them are rhetorical, and some of them are very literal, but the the first question he says to them is, why are you talking about this? I like that first question. Guys, I can hear you talking about bread, right? I can hear you talking about that one stupid piece of pita we got. Why are you talking about that? Why is there an argument about this, right? The the implication of Jesus' first rhetorical question is, why are you wasting time talking about something that is irrelevant? Now, the relevance of that conversation, he will demonstrate in just a minute. But at first, what he says to them is, you're spending a lot of time talking about something that is not what I pointed you towards. It's not what I demonstrated. It's not what I have shown you. And you are preoccupied with it, right? Potentially even in, a, in some division and, and frustration. 
Now, I think there's a moment for us to pause and think about how often in our lives, in our churches, in our world, we see people fighting and divided and argumentative over things that I think Jesus would look at us and go, why are we talking about that? Right? Why are you so busy talking about that? Why are you spending so much time and energy and effort freaking out over this thing? You remember who I am, right? He's going to say that in just a second. Have you been with me or have you not been with me? He asked them a series of questions. The first one is, why are you talking about this? And I would love for us to think about that deeply. I'd love for us to think about the places in which we get embroiled in discussions that have nothing to do with the heart of Jesus. That's not the only question he asks them. Secondly, he says to them, are you ignorant? It's not, that's, not exactly how he says, that's not exactly how he says it, but he says, do you not yet perceive or understand? And at the heart of his question is, is there ignorance involved? Like, are you talking about this because you just don't know any better? Are you talking about this because you haven't been paying attention? Like, what's going on? The third question he asks is, or are your hearts hardened? He says, do you not understand? Are you ignorant? And then secondly, he says, or, or worse, like ignorance is one thing. That's a bummer. But you know what's worse than ignorance, he says? If your heart has become hardened, is it possible that you can't, you can't have a conversation about the leaven of the Pharisees. You can't take that warning seriously. You're so preoccupied with your bread issue because you have a hardened heart towards each other, a hardened heart that has to do with selfishness or pride. Maybe it's ignorance, but maybe it's a hard heart. He goes one step further, and his fourth question is, or maybe you're those who have eyes to see but don't see, or ears to hear and don't hear, right? So he says... Um, he says, verse 18, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, right? So there he's referencing back to a thing he said, and maybe you remember it, maybe you don't, all the way back in Mark 4, when Jesus began to teach in parables. Remember the disciples were like, what's the deal with these parables? And he said, there are people who have eyes to see and ears to hear, and for them the parables will make sense. But there are other people who have their own lenses, and for them they're always going to be confounded by the parables because they're not looking at these stories through the lens of who I am. So Mark chapter 4, verse 11, he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. He's talking about people who in their own stubbornness, not just hardness of heart, but people who have framed the world their own way, and they cannot understand what Jesus brings. Jesus says, why are you talking about this? Are you, are you lacking understanding? Are you ignorant? Has your heart become hardened? Or worse yet, are you, are you following me but wearing the lenses of the Pharisees? Are you following me but you have your own agenda and your own plans? When you hear me, you don't actually hear me. And when you see me, you don't really see me? And then the fifth and final question he asked was just kind of rhetorical, but he's going to follow it up. He says, don't you guys remember? Like, just think for a second. Just think about where we've been. And then, this is, I mean, if, I don't know if church ever gives you nightmares. It gives me nightmares occasionally. This is a passage that might, I just want to warn you, it could give you nightmares. Here's what happens next in Mark chapter 8. Jesus administers a math quiz. Dun, 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 right? For some of us, math, there's nothing harder than a math quiz, right? Jesus says, do you remember when I fed 5,000 people? Let's just let our minds run back to that. He says, we fed 5,000 people, you know, including their families. And how many baskets of scraps and leftovers do we have afterward? And here's the deal, guys. They do remember that. They remember it so well, they answer his question right away, and they get the math right. Jesus says, how many baskets left do we have? And they go, 12. And he goes, okay, you were there. You, do re you were seeing the same thing I was seeing. He says, how about this morning? Do you remember when I fed 4,000 people? 
How many baskets did we collect after that? And they go, oh, seven. He goes, oh, you were there. Yeah, you do remember. What Jesus is essentially saying to them is, how can you be in a boat with a guy who can make lunch for 10,000 people and be worried about bread? How can you be in a boat with a guy who can take a couple of loaves and some fish and feed everybody with leftovers to spare and ever, ever, ever be preoccupied with fear or worry or doubt about what you're gonna eat? It's not unlike when Jesus is in the boat with them in the storm. Remember when we looked at that? And we said at the time, like if Jesus is, if you're in Jesus' boat, you don't need to worry about storms. You don't need to worry about wind or waves or lightning because you're in Jesus' boat. You can set aside storms and talk about something else. If you're in Jesus' boat, you can set aside lunch and talk about the things he's actually wanting you to talk about. The problem is that what Jesus had warned them about, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians, which is when you have your own agenda and it blinds you to the truth of who Jesus is, their own agenda was providing lunch for themselves and each other. And they got into a tussle over that thing. They got into a discussion and it completely blinded them to what Jesus had actually warned them about. So not only does Jesus warn them, they immediately illustrate why they needed the warning, right? Jesus provokes them with these questions, and he is essentially saying, if you're with me, you never need to worry about bread. I am enough. Jesus says, if you're in my boat, let me be enough. There is so much division and uh, that sort of thing over irrelevant issues. I will tell you, church, that one of my prayers for us, Fullerton Free Church, and I know some of you are guests, but just listen. This is insider talk for a second maybe, but maybe this will be your home soon. 2024 is an important year for us as a church to be putting Jesus on display. We talked already about the fact that the miracles of Jesus were done not as signs to the outside world, but as demonstrations of God's love. There has never been a time in my lifetime where I felt like it's more important for us to be revealing Christ. You want to see miracles in your life? And I'm not just talking about miracles to happen in your little life, but I'm saying if you and I want to see miracles happen, we have to set our sides on the needs of others and watch the way that God provides beyond our means to serve others because that's the kind of miracles Jesus did. He saw hungry people and he saw deaf people and miraculous power was brought to bear to serve the needs of others. Our world needs us to put Jesus on display because there is so much that would blind us. That's what this whole passage is about. The very next thing that happens, by the way, is Jesus heals the blind man. He says to him, can you see? And the guy says, well, kind of. And then he touches him again and he can see clearly. That is a picture of what Jesus has been teaching all the way through here. You don't just want to see halfway. You need Jesus to see clearly. Here's, here's maybe my point, and I'll, I'll sort of wrap this thing up slowly. The reality is, sometimes we demonize the Pharisees, and that's a thing that happens in church a lot, where we think of the Pharisees as the villains. They're like the evil ones or whatever. I've already told you before, set that thing aside. The reality is, in this story, the Pharisees and the disciples are basically the same. They're stubborn. They don't listen very well, right? They're, they can be narrow-minded. They're not paying very close attention. I wrote in my night notes, the, the Pharisees and the disciples are stubborn, spiritually dull, and forgetful. But there is a difference between the Pharisees and the disciples. One difference we see in Mark 8 between the Pharisees and the disciples. You know what it is? The disciples are in Jesus' boat. 
You see, for the Pharisees, they see the things he's doing, and the things he's doing and the things he's saying don't line up with their own agenda, don't line up with their own framework, don't line up with their own understanding. And so what the Pharisees do is they turn and walk away, or worse yet, they turn and they go and get the authorities, and they will eventually come to arrest him, right? They push Jesus away because he doesn't fit their paradigm. The difference with the disciples is they also can be uh, spiritually dull and they can be stubborn and they can be forgetful. The difference is they're in Jesus' boat. So in the moments where they forget, he's there to say, weren't you with me this morning? Weren't you with me last week? Don't you remember who I am? The difference between the Pharisees and the disciples is that they're in Jesus' boat. The reality is all of us are on a journey of progressive spiritual enlightenment, progressive spiritual understanding. There's nobody in the room, including me, who sees Jesus 100% clear. We are on a pathway, and the key to seeing Jesus more clearly tomorrow than you see him today is to remain close to Jesus. Don't allow your eyes to become blinded because of your own plans or because of your own fears or because of your own anxieties or because of your own thinking, right? You're gonna get some of it right and you're gonna get some of it wrong. So am I. The key is stay in the boat with Jesus. I mean, what is it we're trying to do with this, right? Is this just to check a box to go like, well, pastors have to get up and be like, you should read your Bible. That's like, they teach you that in Bible college, so we just did this, right? Why, why do we print this? Why did I take a few minutes earlier to say, you should read this with us, it'd be really good for you? Because this is just one tiny gesture. It's not the only way, but it is one way to be actively pursuing Jesus in his boat. Why do we have small groups? Why have I invited you to come and serve at Hoop Stars or you know, what, all of these different opportunities to be a part? All of those are to say, look, you're gonna get some things right, you're gonna get some things wrong, so am I. Let's just keep chasing Jesus together. We're on a journey with Jesus. Therefore, in the moments where we get something wrong, we can trust that Jesus will correct that because of our proximity to Jesus. Does that make sense? The difference between the Pharisees and the disciples is that the disciples are in Jesus' boat. By the way, there is no consequence to their spiritual dullness. He doesn't kick them out of the boat. He doesn't say, I'm so sick of dealing with knuckleheads like you that don't remember anything or whatever. In fact, what he says to them, and let me read this to you. At the end of the section we're looking at here in, uh, back in Mark chapter 8, um, at the end of this section... In verse 21, they answered the math questions, and then in 21 he said to them, do you not yet understand? If you're the kind of person who takes notes, if you have a Mark journal in the room, I would highly encourage you to take your pen and circle that word yet, or underline that word yet, or put a couple exclamation points around it, because what that word yet indicates is that Jesus recognized with grace that they were on a journey, right? That the knuckleheads they were in that very moment were not the knuckleheads they were gonna be, right? And that same grace is extended to us, each and every one of us. It's why we need each other. It's why the community, the body is so important, right? Because in our understanding of Jesus, as it expands and grows in its height and width and depth and length, right? As we grow, we do that together. Our view of Jesus expands. It's interesting at the end of this, and we'll look at this a little bit next week also. But at the end of this section, famously, Jesus is walking with his disciples and he says, what's the word on the street about me? You know, like what, what's, uh, what, what, what's the... What's the 411 or whatever about Jesus? What are people saying? And they go, oh, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah or one of the prophets. And he goes, okay, okay. I get, I get that there's a variety of different opinions on that. He goes, what about you guys? Who do you guys say that I am? For what it's worth, and as a little bit of a side note, let me just say that that is the most important question that a woman or a man ever asks themselves. 
So the most important question you will ever ask yourself in this lifetime is, who do you say that Jesus is? And your answer to it is everything, right? But he looks at his disciples and he says, "Uh, people have various answers, but what do you say? And Peter, Peter, right? Knucklehead Peter, he nails this so great. He says, you're the Christ. In in one of the other gospels, he says, "You, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? Bing, 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 you know? Like he wins the prize. He gets to drive away with the new pickup or whatever. He nails that question, right? He gets it exactly right. Other people have different views. They're looking like uh, it's like a foggy tree walking around. Peter sees Jesus is the Messiah. And in the very next paragraph, Jesus begins the slow process of rolling out to them how painful it will be both for him to be the Messiah and also for them to be followers of the Messiah. He starts to talk about his arrest. He starts to talk about his death. He starts to talk about all of that and Peter doesn't want to hear it. In fact, Peter has the gall to pull Jesus aside and say, hey, don't talk about death. Don't talk about suffering. Don't talk about pain. We'll look at that a little bit more next week. But what I want you to see is right here, side by side, two paragraphs. Peter nails it, right? Yes, he gets the answer right. And the very next section, he doesn't see Jesus clearly. Why? Because he has his own agenda. He's focused on his own little pita bread, right? The Messiah in his mind does not suffer. The Messiah in his mind does not die. The Messiah in his mind is not arrested, right? No more talk of suffering. The Messiah is a victorious figure, right? So Peter sees some, but he doesn't see all. That is a demonstration of exactly who we are. That's exactly who we are. Progressively seeing Jesus more and more clearly, and we do that as we remain committed to focusing on being in the boat with Jesus, listening to what he has actually said and what he actually did. What are his priorities? For us, in the days and months ahead, the the key is that we will always be progressing in our understanding until, like it says in 1 John 3, 1 John 3 verse 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The implication of 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 is that there is a day in our future when we will see Jesus as he is. But what is also implied by, actually that's stated emphatically there, what is implied is that every day prior to that, none of us see him clearly. Not 100%. So we got to stay in his boat. Because there's things we're going to get right and there's things we're going to get wrong. We've got to stay close to Jesus so we don't get distracted by who brought Peter, right? There's a day in which we will see him clearly. It finishes in this little section, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 says, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We have this hope that there's a day when we will have the answers that we seek, right? That we will see Jesus clearly. But in between now and then... The best we can do is to be obedient to who he's called us to be and to follow him faithfully, recognizing in humility our own weakness and that sometimes when we look, we see things that just look like trees walking around and that it might take a little more time with Jesus to clear up our lenses, you know? We want to finish this morning uh, with a, a kind of something new with response. Um, we are a church that believes, man, we don't want to just be hearers of God's word. Like we always want to figure out what God's doing in our hearts, how the Holy Spirit's moving, and then how do we respond? And sometimes that response can provoke singing, or sometimes it provokes prayer, sometimes it provokes standing or sitting or whatever, and all of that is acceptable. The prayer room will be open in a minute, and our teams will come down to be available to pray with you. But one of the things we started doing last year in our response Sundays, which happened periodically, is we started providing uh, both a uh, 
like a, a question to contemplate, right? A question for contemplation and a prayer for conversation with God. And I had a couple of you after our response Sunday in December who said, man, it would be really helpful to have that kind of prompt every week. So we're going to try it for a little while and see how it works. So what I want to give you in just a second is a, is a, a question or two for contemplation about this. And you do with this what you want. You can read it. You can meditate on it. You think about it. I'm going to give you about 90 seconds just to kind of internalize it. And then I'll follow that, contem- or excuse me, that contemplation with a prayer for conversation. Not a thing you need to pray out loud necessarily, but once again, a thing I'd love for you to just take a posture of prayer to speak to God in your own life. So first, let me give you this question as we begin to respond together. The question for contemplation is this. Where has your view of Jesus been diminished by other concerns? And what are steps that you could take to set aside your own agenda and follow Jesus more closely? Let's just take about 90 seconds and think about that. It'll stay up on the screens for you. And now here's a prayer for conversation. I'll remind you that um, this is not the beginning or the end of response. Uh, The staff and elders will come and make themselves available. If you want to come down and pray with somebody, they would love, I'm telling you, they would love to pray with you. The prayer room is open. You can take advantage of that. It's right through these doors if you want a little more quiet space. But you're free to stand and sing or to sit and pray or kneel down. or like the, The posture physically is less important than the posture of the heart in responding to what God might be saying to you. But here's a prayer for conversation. Let's pray this silently together as I read it aloud. Holy Spirit, show me my blind spots and empower me with the humility to accept that these are a normal part of what it means to be human. Jesus, be the center of my attention and guide me on a path toward satisfaction in you that will free me to use my energies to glorify God in the service of others. Take a moment and pray through that. Mm -hmm.